Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, too often darkness surrounds us. Guilt and condemnation press in on us. We feel small, bruised, broken, smoldering. And we need your word to speak light to us. Life into our hearts. So would you do that now? Whatever darkness we are experiencing, whatever suffering has come our way, God, give us hope today through this, your word, that we could stand on it more firm than the moment we walked in here. We could leave this place more confident in your sovereign work in our lives. Amen. How many of you have ever had a job where you felt quite unappreciated? You put hours and hours of faithful labor into your work only to feel like it's gone completely unnoticed. Perhaps you think it would be really helpful if your boss came and spent a week doing what you did and then you would feel he he would finally understand your value, how much you have given to this company. Perhaps then he would realize how important you are and he would promote you right away to CEO. I guess there's a TV show that kind of undertakes this premise a little bit. I've never seen it, but it's called Undercover Boss. The the idea is that uh, the boss, the owner of a business or a supervisor, takes on a secret identity, hires himself as a laborer in the company, and some makeup artist changes look a little and puts on a different wardrobe, and he works the whole week as one of the laborers, one of the people. And then at the end, he has gained a new appreciation for his employees when he has this big reveal rips off the mask it's me your boss and they're all like oh how wonderful this is so great now we respect you so much more i guess i've never seen it so i think that's the idea but sometimes it does feel nice for someone to come down from their high place and try to understand us in our lowliness we hate boring routines of life we hate the idea of being unknown. Even if we never become president of the United States of America, we still want respect. We still want to know that somehow our lives made a difference in this world, which is why millennials are so well known for wanting to do great things. They have huge dreams of going to the other side of the world and saving an entire country or feel this burden of guilt carrying around that they're not doing enough. But today I want to explore that this is not the way that God expects His glory to fill the earth. The Jews too, they expected the Messiah to show up and affirm them where they were, come to their defense. They were tired of being oppressed. They were tired of being the little guy, pawns in the Roman Empire who were forced to support things that violated their conscience. They were ready for the king to show up and finally make things right again. And then Jesus shows up. Seems like a pretty awesome guy. He's got the right lineage. He starts saying that he's the fulfillment of all kinds of prophecies. He teaches with incredible authority. He commands creation with power as only God could do. This has to be the one. It's only a matter of time before the revolution starts and he gathers people and he goes and storms the gates of Jerusalem to take back what's his. But then things take a bit of a turn. 
he starts, he walks away from confrontation. He just walks away. He doesn't seem to be in a huge hurry to get to Jerusalem. In fact, he's just hanging out with regular, broken, poor, needy people. How could this guy be the one? What is God doing? This doesn't make any sense. He didn't meet their expectations. And now we start to find out that their expectations were a little off. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. And we'll look at just six verses today, 15 to 21, and see how this ordinary, unappreciated life that we all live is actually all part of God's marvelous plan. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our main idea that we're going to explore today, as you see in your bulletin, is God's plan of redemption mysteriously unfolds through the quiet work of his humble servants. God's plan of redemption mysteriously unfolds through the quiet work of his humble servants. All of us want to be recognized for our work in some way or defended when we're oppressed. We want to do great things for God. We want to make our mark in history. But when Jesus came, he showed us that the way to glory is through humble, relatively unknown service. And we'll explore this concept just in two parts through this small text. First, we'll look at the servant's conduct in verses 15 and 16. Why did Jesus? What did Jesus do when he had the opportunity to defend himself, to fight back? And then in verses 17 to 21, see the servant's purpose, what he is doing. Why did he do it this way? But before jumping back into the, into the text, let's remember where we've come from as we do every week. The first nine chapters of the book of Matthew, we've seen that Matthew wants us to know this really is the king. You do not have to doubt that at all. He is the one they expected. His lineage and his birth fit perfectly. He's the son of David. He was anointed by the spirit of God at his baptism. And then he starts preaching with authority. He's commanding creation, healing people left and right. He's fulfilling prophecy. This is your guy. And then there's a little transition in chapter 10 where we see the king comes and takes all of this fantastic authority that he has and he shares it with his disciples and says, help me. I want you guys to be the one to help me usher in this fantastic kingdom that everybody is longing for. And the disciples are thinking, finally, someone showed up and recognized our value, our importance. We're getting our promotion." 
We get to go and tell the whole world that Israel's the greatest nation on earth. Let's go make Israel great again. The world is about to find out the power of this king. But then Jesus warns them, no, don't be so quick to jump to that conclusion. Things are about to get much worse, much more difficult for you and for me. And so from here to the end of Matthew's gospel, we see just mounting, rising difficulties and threats to Jesus' ministry. So last week, Jake preached, Jesus confronted the Pharisees on the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath all about? He said, I can heal on the Sabbath because it's all about me anyway. It all points to me. I am the God that the Sabbath pointed to. And then the the battle begins. In verse 14, it says the Pharisees kind of pulled to the side and they started to conspire. How can we kill this Jesus? They're in the synagogue and they go over to the corner, find another room and whisper to themselves, this guy will not reign over us. We want nothing to do with him. And so we're left with the question, what is Jesus going to do in the face of this opposition? Is he going to enter into debate with them and show them how much smarter he is and how this is the plan? He has the right. Is he going to fight back? Maybe he's going to call down fire from heaven and destroy them and march his way into Jerusalem. Actually, it's none of the above. We see from verses in 15 and 16, it was quite the opposite. Look back to those two verses. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. He didn't want all of that fanfare. And this isn't what the people were expecting. What's going on? There doesn't seem to be much written here in these two verses, but they tell us a lot about God's plan and Jesus' faithfulness to it. I love this first phrase. It's just so simple. Jesus was aware of this. They were conspiring over there to kill him, and he knew what was going on, but he just moved on. He just moved on. He knew what was going on. He could read their minds, even if they were over in the corner talking amongst themselves, again, revealing his divinity. So this great king, right in their midst, we've seen he's the judge of the universe, and he can hear their thoughts. He could walk right up to them and say, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're planning. Every single thought is wicked, and you are condemned for those thoughts. And he could strike them all dead right there. But instead, he just walks away. He leaves the synagogue. This is a repeated theme in Matthew. He, confrontation arises with the Pharisees. He says his piece and moves on. He doesn't enter into debates with them. He doesn't bring judgment upon them. It's not time for that judgment. Nor is it time for him to take the judgment upon himself yet. That will come, but not yet. Not yet. Because that's not how he's going to spread his kingdom. But it is interesting then what he does next. He doesn't go hide in a cave and gather his disciples around him and start some monastic community. We'll stay safe here and we'll gain some power together in our own community and then we'll overtake them. And he doesn't go start a private school or a gated community where he can keep out the riffraff, those sinners who might throw off his plan. He just goes right back to business among the ordinary, hurting, broken people. 
Many followed him and he healed them all. It wasn't this big revolution where he's waving a flag, rallying the troops. He just went and served people. None of these people that he served were going to be strong warriors in this revolutionary war that they were expecting. They weren't people with influence that would follow him to the palace, to the capital city, and help get him some leverage, maybe a little voice there. They were just ordinary people like you and me who really have very little to offer in this life. We just want to be valued. We just want to know that maybe somehow we can be part of something important. This is actually quite exciting for them. Can you imagine what they're feeling? This guy who commands the seas and the winds, he heals people, raises them from the dead. He's hanging out with me. He's like a celebrity. You, get to, you go to a concert and they throw you a t-shirt and you're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Jesus touched me. He healed me. The one that everyone wants to know. He talked to me. But then Jesus says, no, don't do that. Don't talk about me. Don't go, don't go spreading my fame around here yet. Jesus is on a mission that they don't quite understand yet. It doesn't make any sense. They wanted him to storm the palace, take his throne, kick out all those people, and of course bring them along so they could participate with him in his wonderful kingdom. But his plan is not this bombastic revolution. He's not going to engage the people in debates over who's got the right authority. He doesn't get defensive about, hey, you're not treating me fairly and start a petition or some boycott because we don't get fair treatment. He doesn't go appeal to the courts to make things right for him, to get more liberty of conscience. He just goes out and serves people. The courts aren't going to understand true justice anyway. Now Jesus has a much quieter mission. He's going to spread his kingdom beneath all of the eyes of the corruption of the elites in Jerusalem. In chapter 13, we'll see more from his parables of the kingdom, how this kingdom just spreads quietly, steadily, surely. There will eventually be a time for that conquering victory when he will come and finally, once and for all, make it all right. But not yet. Not yet. He still has some other things to accomplish. He's got prophecy to fulfill, which is where Matthew turns in verse 17. Jesus is a man on a mission to fulfill prophecy. And Matthew identifies Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, as the prophecy that Jesus right now is in the process of fulfilling to give us a key to understand what his kingdom looks like. So let's look back to 17 to 21. This quote of Isaiah 42. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So after Jesus escapes this rising opposition, his disciples are thinking, when's he going to defend himself? When does the battle come? 
When is Jesus finally going to fight back? All he does is serve people. This is ridiculous. And so Matthew gives us Isaiah 42 as the interpretive key. This is how this kingdom is going to take over the world. It doesn't make any sense to you, but you just wait. God knows what he's doing. And so we can see right away the emphasis on God's sovereignty. This is his servant that whom he has chosen. This is the plan God has chosen from before the foundations of the earth. It might not make any sense to you. Oftentimes this world doesn't make any sense. But we need to ground all of our hope, all of our faith in God's sovereign plan. This is the king they longed for. And it pleases God's soul to have this plan unfold. Here at Redemption, we actually love, we delight in the doctrine of election, of God's sovereign predestination. It doesn't, election doesn't simply mean that God likes this candidate and so he chooses that one and he hopes everyone else will come alongside of him. It means that he has chosen with his powerful words to make this happen. He has ordained history, the decisions of men to come to this very moment so Jesus could come forward as the great servant. Clearly, we can see from Matthew's use of Isaiah's prophecy that he's saying God is in control of every single decision. Isaiah wrote this over 700 years before. How could he know that what was going to happen 700 years later unless God was in control of every molecule and every firing synapse in our brains? To get everything to line up for this moment in history, he had to have control over it all. Some people are afraid of this doctrine of election because it seems like God is taking away choice from us and it's some arbitrary decision process up in heaven. But there's nothing arbitrary about it. It is so much better for God to be in control of history than us. History is unfolding according to God's deliberate plan that pleases Him and that is according to His wise counsel. Who is more happy and more wise than God himself? Who knows how to run things better than him? Thank God he makes these decisions. So we can be confident then when he's in control. We, we can be confident that no matter what is happening around us, he will bring justice to victory. No matter what opposition we face, we can proclaim the gospel because we know his word will do its work. But notice how his work is done. He puts his spirit upon his servant. God has always throughout history put his spirit upon the people that he wants to raise up and accomplish things. So you saw the spirit come on David or the spirit come on the judges, the ones who are to lead his people to victory. And here God anoints Jesus giving him his spirit so he can do this incredible kingdom work. He wants the whole world to have this beautiful knowledge of God. And His Spirit is the one that's going to make it happen. His Spirit will bring justice. But when the Jews read this, they, they didn't read the word justice. They read judgment. The Spirit's going to come and bring judgment on the nations. You guys oppressing all of the Jews in Israel, you deserve judgment. So they were ready for this king to come in and wipe out the people. But we can see from the context that the word should be translated justice. 
because all the nations are going to find their hope in him. They're not going to be wiped out. They're going to be made right. The Gentiles will hope in his name. And in verses 19 and 20, we see the mysterious way in which this work is accomplished. He's not going to argue with people. He's not going to quarrel. He's not going to say, hey, that's not right. Let me show you where the text is and and how that's illogical and that's a fallacy. He's not going to waste his time on that. He's not going to cry aloud in the streets. That's not fair. We've got rights in this country, you know. People wouldn't listen to that anyway. Remember, in our sin, our ears are deaf. We can't hear God's truth. So arguing with people is a fruitless endeavor. Arguing actually just makes us look angry. It makes us look unsatisfied in this call on our lives. People start to think that, oh, wow, you guys are just a bunch of angry people who really hate life, don't you? Because all you do is argue about how the rest of the world is wrong. Are we really that unsure of our own identity in Christ that we need to argue with people? Instead, Jesus says that this powerful global work is done through quiet, humble service to and through ordinary people like you and me. If you trust that God is sovereign, it just releases you from all kinds of burdens that I need to accomplish something great. I need to become somebody important. We just trust that through my ordinary service to my brothers and sisters and to my neighbors, God is going to work it all together. Sometimes it's going to feel like there's some massive injustices in your life that make you want to cry out for God to be forceful, to come to your defense, or maybe we should all get together and have some political action. But we can be assured that God will care for his people when we quietly serve one another. One day, he will make everything right. He promises us he will not let this break us. These next verses are some of my favorite in the entire Bible. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. These are metaphors for the types of people that Jesus is going to gather into his kingdom. These are images from the, from the early first century. A, a reed is just a stick that was often used for measuring, or it was used for discipline. It was used, if you tied them together, it would hold things up. A bruised one is one that's already kind of bending and broken, so it's not strong. you got to just toss it out and go get a new one. Or a wick, it's a, a long, wide piece of fabric that you shove down into your oil lamp, and the oil soaks up through it, and then it holds the flame above the lamp so that light can go throughout the whole room. But a smoldering wick is one that's burned all the way down. It no longer pulls the oil up, and it can't hold the flame up very high, so it's just this little glowing flame. And when it gets to that point, it's time to take it out, toss it in the trash, and get a new one. But Jesus loves to use these types of people. He will not take a, or throw us out and replace us with a stronger version. If our light is barely glowing, he's not going to toss us out and get someone else to come in who burns brighter. He came instead to rescue us. This verse has been one of the most comforting to me over the last year of trials. When I have felt battered and beat up, bruised and broken, He promises that these circumstances will not ultimately destroy me. 
He's not going to come in and say, you're not doing good enough, Adam. You're out. I'm going to get a better version of you. It's actually his plan to use broken people like us and build us back up and fill his kingdom with people like us so that when the kingdom fills the earth, it will be so clear that it wasn't our strength and our brightness that built this kingdom, but his might, his mercy that brought justice. This is such a shocking concept. A guy who is starting a revolution, will often gather to himself the strongest people he can find to protect him. There'll be kind of bodyguards, but then they'll all go together and storm the castle, storm the palace, so he can be certain that throne can be his. The only use a revolutionary has like this, like this has for poor and needy people is just to be pawns, to support him when the time comes, when he gets there, that they won't then revolt against him. But he doesn't actually intend to help these pawns, these poor people out. It's like election season in America, right? You get all these guys campaigning, free cell phones, free college tuition if you vote for me. And suddenly the guy's the president. He just promised all those things to the ignorant masses to get himself into a position of power and respect and authority. But he has no ability to do such things. But not this Messiah, not our Jesus. The people are his delight. It is his joy to be a servant to us, to make us key contributors in his kingdom. He is our servant. And he's going to keep doing this work until the world is full of servants just like him. Verse 21 says he is going to bring justice to victory and the nations will hope in his name. This is a guaranteed victory and it's going to happen because he'll put his spirit in the people who will serve just like he did. Simple, ordinary, humble service is going to bring about God's victory. Justice to the ends of the earth. This should be such an encouragement to every single person in this room. You don't need to feel inadequate anymore. You should not feel guilty for not doing enough for the kingdom. You don't need to be radical and go sell off everything and become a missionary. You shouldn't feel guilty that you actually have a fairly enjoyable life in America. You don't have to start an orphanage or a women's shelter. These are great things. You don't need to climb the corporate ladder to be important. God has you right where he wants you. As Jake said, it is God's work. It is evidence of God's work that you are here today. He has orchestrated history for this moment as well. He has guided the decisions of your grandparents and your parents and your neighbors and your employer so that you could be here today. And if you are trusting in Christ, you have the same spirit alive in you that he did so that you can leave this place and go turn the world upside down through simple, ordinary service. His call on all of our lives is to go spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in our good old American mindset, we think, we need to go, let's go, let's get out of here. Hop on a trusty steed and go conquer the world. But we see here today, it's not that way, but through ordinary service to others, to your neighbor to your co-worker, to your family and friends, and especially to your church. 
Don't waste your time getting defensive about how the world doesn't respect you or value you. Don't get lost in blog and Facebook comment threads getting defensive about everything, about your religious liberty. Jesus promised that the world is going to hate us. So let's not argue with them. We should expect this ignorant opposition and instead, quietly and faithfully, work at our jobs. And we'll gain an audience with a coworker who sees our diligent work. Or know that your commitment to stay home with your children for a third of your entire life that may go unnoticed by the whole world does not go unnoticed by the king. He sees it. Arriving before the church gathers to set up rickety folding chairs or to make a crockpot meal to share with everyone afterward. This is the kind of service that is going to change the world. Open your home for a person to live in for a couple of months until they get back on their feet. Invite your neighbor to your house and share a meal. These are the things that will achieve radical, long-lasting change in the world that we all want to be a part of. But don't forget why this is even possible. This is not something that you can do on your own apart from Christ. Only in Christ is this radical type of ordinary service possible. If you go home after this because you hear, oh, Matthew quoted Isaiah 42, so I'm going to go back and read Isaiah to see how that works. You might notice that the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are bringing judgment and condemnation on Israel and the nations for their sin and their faithlessness. And then there's this transition in 40, chapter 40, all the way to the end in chapter 66, that of hope, bringing hope that there's one day going to come a servant who finally sets things right, who brings justice to the nations. And as you read that, you might think, well, it seems to me in 40, 41, 42, that Israel is actually called the servant, not Jesus. And this is actually one reason why Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah. They say that Christians and the New Testament writers see Jesus and now we're reading him back into the book of Isaiah. They say, no, no, no. Israel's called to be the servant, not Jesus. Israel's the one that brings justice to the nations. And you know what? I have to agree with them. Israel was supposed to be that, but they couldn't do it. Israel was called to be a servant that proclaims righteousness to the nations, that models God's holiness to the nations, that brings justice to the nations. But they couldn't even keep justice in their own nation. It seemed hopeless over and over that nobody could do this. But as Isaiah develops his servant songs, we come to realize that despite their disobedience, someone, this one guy, is going to rise up out of nowhere in Israel who is called to be the servant that they couldn't be. He's going to be the head servant and take upon that entire role upon himself. The main idea that we've been exploring is that God's plan of redemption mysteriously unfolds through the quiet work of his humble servants. This has always been the call on God's people, but nobody has been able to do it. So today I can't stand here and tell you, go be a humble servant. Go be a kind, generous servant to your neighbor. Go change the world by loving your coworkers. Because you can't do that apart from Christ. 
Your flesh keeps you from that. It wars against you, making you discontent with the world that you're in, making you feel like you need to defend yourself all the time instead of being satisfied in the ordinary. We are only able to do this when Christ and His Spirit dwells in us, when we are in Him, when He's our King who goes before us and clears the path. He clears the way by taking all of our sin upon Himself and giving us His righteousness. Isaiah would clarify this in his servant song in Isaiah 53. Even though this servant who proclaims good news and justice to the nations, even though he helped poor, hurting people, he lifted them up, he healed them. What a great guy this is! He would be despised and rejected. He would be smitten by God, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid upon him, heaped upon him the iniquity of us all. It pleased God to crush him because it was pleasing to God to crush us in our sins. Justice for the nations in our sin means eternal punishment in hell. Instead, He has made a way to bear our sins and make us righteous, to make us humble servants. We are a people, if we are saved by Christ, who can never say, that's not fair. I try to teach my kids this all the time. Don't say that's not fair. We have not received what is fair. If we did, we would be in hell. Instead, because of Christ's sacrifice, He gives us righteousness and turns us into an army of humble servants. Even Jesus Himself. We, think, we look back and we think of the cross, the, His death on the cross and His resurrection as this monumental moment in history that dramatically changed the face of history. And it did now that we look back 2,000 years later. But at that moment, the world really didn't even notice. They just went along with their lives. He was just another criminal that was hung on a cross. He didn't even get the respect then after he rose from the dead. If you read ancient historians, if they ever mention Jesus at that time, which they rarely do, it's more in mockery. Oh, can you believe people actually believe that guy? They trust in him? We see that even the way that our kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, was founded was relatively unknown. But then God's Spirit got a hold of his people, and slowly but surely, this kingdom took over empires and now spreads around the whole earth because his Spirit enables simple ordinary service, this quiet servant heart in all those who trust in Him. So may you go out from this place today, just like Jesus departed from the synagogue, and go make His glory known in simple, humble service for His kingdom. Let's pray. God, how freeing it is it that we can just be the simple broken, ordinary people that you made us. And you will not throw us out, you will not cast us aside, but you will strengthen us that our light would burn and shine brighter. You are going to fill the earth with your spirit, with your people, through ordinary service to our neighbors. So I pray even right now 
we would be thinking of ways to bless our neighbor, the people sitting right next to us, and that our fellowship meal afterwards would be a time of sweet fellowship with your spirit that would encourage us in our lowliness, in our humbleness. God, may you receive the glory. May the strength of Christ be on display in these people. For your glory. Amen.